So I think we made great strides. Where the work remains is thinking in a more holistic way about the relationship uh, from a policy point of view between or among mobility, housing, and sustainability. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview, recorded on March 6th, is a conversation with Chris Hawthorne, currently teaching at the Yale School of Architecture, coming off of a four-year role as the first chief design officer of the city of Los Angeles during the Garcetti administration, and prior to that, the long-term architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times. I've wanted to have Chris on the show since reading his letter to the readers of the LA Times when he accepted his role in city government, setting some pretty lofty goals for the chief design officer role, with an incredibly well-articulated mission for elevating the public discourse around development in his cities. Those are goals that resonate for our industry's work across the country and indeed across the globe in using development to address some of our concurrent and deep urban issues. We've put a link to Chris's letter to the LA Times in the show notes. I look at the letter as a universal call to action to move the opportunity of development from a least common denominator exercise to a discourse through which communities can see development as a leverage opportunity to create multiple positive ripple effects in a neighborhood or city. We only get partway in exploring how to move the civic discussion in this direction, but I'll make sure to keep coming back to that concept on future episodes of the show. This conversation with Chris is in many ways a respite from the news cycle of the past week with the crisis in the banking system. If the common adage that when the Fed hits the brakes, someone always goes through the windshield is true, and these bank failures are examples, then I think the more transactional versus systemic discussions I've heard in the real estate world about the impact of the new rate environment miss the bigger picture of real estate enterprises that are long on a different type of risk. The generation of business that's enjoyed artificially low rates will now be investing in portfolio managing in a more normalized rate environment. This will be coupled with a repricing of the office asset food group a secular shift again between suburban versus CBD, and pricing in the cost of sustainability. These changes will all make the next generation of our business really, really interesting in themes that we will continue to explore on Leading Voices. The conversation with Chris is a very different type of discussion for Leading Voices, since so many of our guests are CEOs talking about their businesses. I draw your attention to the conversations in the archive with architects and planners like Mitchell Silver, past president of the American Planning Association, and went on the show the commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Michael Colville Anderson, not from the Academy, and talking plainly about planning and bicycle infrastructure. Andres Dewani, the father of new urbanism. Phil Freelon, one of the architects behind the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. John Ram, then planning director from the city of San Francisco. And from the more business side of things, both Art Gensler, Ricky Nishimura, and also Andy Cohen, all from Gensler. This conversation with Chris is a continuation of those discussions around the importance and tools of design and planning and the work that we do in the real estate business. The work that we together do in the real estate business and the role that we at ZRG play as search professionals in the real estate business is by its nature holistic and interdisciplinary. It's the broader view, or said differently, understanding the broader context that for me really separates thoughtful versus simple decision making. 
and a way of looking at the business that we hopefully bring as search partners at CRG, and also hopefully the breadth of discussion that Leading Voices brings to our listeners. If you're enjoying this show and have not already, please subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show and encourage them to listen in. If you have a few minutes, please rate us on your podcast app. And if you have comments or questions, guest suggestions, or if you want to get in touch relating to how ZRG might be able to help your firm in its talent needs, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Chris Hawthorne. So, Chris Hawthorne, uh, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. This is actually the first time we've spoken, but I've wanted to have you on the show um, almost since we started the podcast five or six years ago, about a year into Leading Voices, when I started wanting to curate the real estate world through these conversations, I read a letter in the LA Times that you wrote about leaving the LA Times to join the city of Los Angeles uh, to become their chief design officer. And I'm like, I have to have this guy on the show. I'm going to read an excerpt from that letter to get the conversation started, and then we're going to jump in. But this is part of your comment, and you were discussing with Mayor Garcetti what would define success in the role. And you said, his answer was that we have done well if at the end of my tenure we'd begin producing better buildings and better public spaces, but also discussing design in a more sophisticated and nuanced way in Los Angeles. We've had innovative public spaces and new landmarks to point to, a superb skyscraper on its way up, an impressive public building by a dynamic young firm, street design that keeps pedestrians and cyclists from feeling like second-class citizens, but also a more robust dialogue about architecture and planning. No big city in America has fewer platforms and institutions for talking about these issues in Los Angeles. At the same time, given the investments and new infrastructure I've outlined above, no city needs those platforms more. So kind of high goals for when you join the city and a conversation worth having on Leading Voices today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Um, I was just revisiting that piece and and some of what the mayor and I said when I took the job, because I was um, speaking with the New York Times reporter last week about Mayor Eric Adams' decision to create a, what they've, they're calling a public realm director in the city of New York, and not exactly the same position as the one I had, but one that I think is modeled to a certain degree on what Los Angeles and a few other cities who have created chief design officer positions have done. Those other cities include Auckland, New Zealand, Helsinki, Finland, Mexico City had an interesting urban innovation lab. So it was interesting to revisit those goals. I'm quite proud of the fact that I think particularly as it relates to housing, but also in a few other areas, we were able to change the direction of uh, the kind of civic conversation in a way that I think will have some long-term benefits. That's not to say that I didn't learn a lot of lessons uh, about how city government works um, after um, having written about it for as long as I did. It's, of course, always different to see uh-huh. uh, that beast from the inside, as it were. And when I think of the word design, I think of a small mandate. And when I think of kind of the urban fabric, I think of a big mandate. Could you describe where you, and through your career, because we're going to talk both about your career and then what you did in LA, how much is design and how much is the broader topics? Yes, I think uh, I have come to articulate it this way, that design is a means to an end. Design is a way to advance larger goals, whether that's for a city or a certain uh, particular mayoral administration. 
So if we're talking about equity goals, if we're talking about housing affordability goals, if we're talking about quality of life, the experience, as I mentioned in that LA Times piece of of moving through the city, moving through the urban fabric, uh, certainly in terms of climate goals, all of that can be, in my view, more efficiently enabled by a design process that is more, let's say, more self-aware, more streamlined, um, giving more avenues for bringing good design into the conversation as early as as possible. And I'm, one of the things I'm hoping we'd talk about is procurement, where, where I spent a lot of my my time and energy thinking about how the city hires designers and architects and then how it oversees that process. So for me, the larger question was, what is the city building directly first and foremost? What is the city paying for with taxpayer money? And then what is the city enabling in terms of private development? And how can a focus on good design, as I mentioned early in the process, increase the chances that will um, achieve the the greater outcomes that we're aiming for that, that are not necessarily, and most of the time, not about design per se. They're about some of those other issues that I mentioned, equity, sustainability, affordability, housing options, things like that. Uh-huh. And through your career, so if we have three chunks in your career, the latest one is short so far, but if you were the architecture critic for the LA Times for many years, then the chief design officer for the city, and now you're at Yale. What do the ch- what's the difference between these roles, and how have you evolved in your thinking? Because when I think of architecture critic, I think a lot of building skin, less than what works, and the broader topics that we're going to go through in the whole conversation. So how much is skin and what it looks like versus how it feels, how it works, how it fits in the neighborhood? I'm happy to talk about some of the differences. And I also think there's some connecting threads or some connections there that that also suggest a, you know, a more consistent trajectory than maybe a you know, quick glance mm-hmm. at my resume would suggest. But in terms of where they're different, it has to do with audience, first of all, um, it has to do with, with medium. So as a critic, while my focus was architecture, I came out of a journalism background. I edited my high school paper. I was always interested in writing. Um, That's one of the reasons when I got to college, I didn't study architecture from a design point of view. I studied it from an architectural history and theory point of view because I already aspired to be an architecture critic, even in high school, as strange as that sounds. I knew that there was a job of architecture critic, which a lot of kids don't. Um, I was reading... I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in Berkeley. I was reading Alan Temko, the critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, who I think is underappreciated, won a Pulitzer in the 80s. I was reading Ada Louise Huxtable and Paul Goldberger in, in the New York Times, particularly Paul Goldberger, because by the time I was in high school, the New York Times had a national edition, and we were getting the print New York Times in, in California, and I was reading Paul Goldberger's work. Mm-hmm. And as I was editing my own high school paper, very much aware that there was this thing called architecture critic that one could do as a career. And then I came to Yale as an undergraduate and studied um, with Vincent Scully, who is a very prominent architectural historian. There was a moment when something like, this is probably 10 or 15 years ago, something like two-thirds of the full-time architecture critics in the country, and it's always a small group, Mm -hmm. were students, former students of Scully's. And he was not a mentor directly to me the way he was to Paul Goldberger and others, but his, uh, his survey classes on American architecture Uh, in particular, had a really profound effect on me. I will still often have the experience of being in a city, getting out of a taxi or an Uber, 
in front of a building and, and then being taken back to the lecture, Scully's lecture about that building, remembering, remembering what he said about it. Right. Uh, he was very dramatic and memorable speaker. So I was training, you know, um, and I studied both architectural history and political science as an undergraduate. So I was training for a career that had more to do with writing uh, and perhaps policy uh-huh. and less to do with practice in architecture because I didn't have any skills as a, as a you know, I couldn't draw to save my life. Uh, and that skills may be less important now in architecture than it used to be. But I knew that the skills that I had, such as they were, were on the, you know, on the writing side of the equation rather than on the mm-hmm. design drawing studio side of the equation. When I when I got the job at the LA Times, which was in 2004, I had been the critic at Slate, the online magazine. Uh-huh. I was their first architecture critic. That was back in the days uh, also to make me feel old when an online only publication was a novel, a real novelty. And then I moved to the Times in uh, Los Angeles Times in 2004. And so in that job, you're writing, uh, of course, about uh, new buildings by prominent architects. That's the kind of bread and butter right. definition of what an architecture critic does, just like a movie critic is writing about the new releases uh, that people will go to see or not see. And book critics are writing about um, uh, recently published literature, uh, mostly by the big publishing houses. I think over time, I had this interest going in, perhaps this goes back to my um, also having studied political science and philosophy and an interest in policy. I was interested from the early time in my tenure at the LA Times in writing about urbanism, about the future of the city, but that really deepened over time. And I found that Los Angeles itself was the most fascinating subject an American architecture critic could have. It was a city going through a really profound shifted that it is still navigating, it seems to me, between its post-war suburbanized, you know, car-dependent self, the Los Angeles that everyone is familiar with, the Los Angeles that, you know, has launched a thousand tropes and cliches, the city of freeways and single-family houses and vanity and swimming pools and cultural and civic fragmentation, the list is quite long, navigating a transition into, let's say, a post-suburban version of itself, which is less dependent on cars, which is thinking about more housing options across the spectrum from the single family house to, you know, really vertical, denser living, rebuilding, reinvesting in its transit system. Uh, Easy to forget, but Los Angeles had in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, the most extensive mass transit system in the country, one of the most in the world. It was privately owned, the streetcar network. Important distinction, but we are rebuilding that. And so the city was navigating this, and in some ways kind of redefining its civic identity, rewriting its civic identity in ways that were playing out in the built environment. And that made for fascinating subject matter. So over time, I really made that the focus of my work. I was still traveling to see, you know, new museums by famous architects in New York or Chicago or Europe or Asia, but um, I was more and more writing about Los Angeles itself. And, And in fact, that has something to do with how I wound up working in City Hall. I got to know first council member and then council president Garcetti before he became mayor. We did some public conversations in the mayoral race of 2013, the LA chapter of the American Institute of Architects sponsored a series of conversations with each of the mayoral candidates in turn, not a debate, but a conversation for about 90 minutes with each of the candidates. So the then president of the Los Angeles Planning Commission, Bill Roshan and I moderated a series of conversations um, uh, on a weekly basis. And it was clear, A, when we had our conversation with uh, council president and mayoral candidate Garcetti, that he a was likely to win. He was the most impressive candidate, mm-hmm. but also B, he had a real interest in sophistication, 
curiosity about the subjects that I knew about, that I wrote about urban design, architecture, the future of the city as seen through the built environment. And so we started talking even fairly soon after he was elected the first time around about uh, what other cities were doing along those lines, the creation of these um, first few chief design officer positions and some of the cities mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier. And then it was after his reelection that we started talking in earnest about the job that I wound up taking. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that. It's, it's so interesting. You had an evolution in your role as architecture critic to looking at the built environment in the city that was having massive change. And maybe you thought you were going in to review buildings, but you really realized there was a societal nature to the big trends that you were going to follow. Yes. And this is where maybe the common threads come in among these positions. I think it's really a kind of translation Mm -hmm. is what I was doing as a critic and what I was doing within city government, different kinds of translation. But what I was doing as a critic was explaining to the reading public what either architects or policies urban designers, um, city planners were doing what their aims were and and maybe how the final product measured up against those aims or goals of a project, right? So you're explaining what's happening within the world of architecture, culture, and urban design to an audience that may be interested, we hope, or is interested in those subjects, but probably doesn't bring necessarily any level of sophistication about what the what is happening within the discipline or the profession. Uh-huh. Similarly, I think uh, within City Hall, I was making the case in a number of different directions about the importance of good design. So sometimes I was carrying the mayor's message to communities um, in the public. Sometimes I was carrying the mayor's message to city departments about the importance of particular priorities. Sometimes I was helping translate what the architects uh, who had been hired by the city hoped to do and translating that in, into language that the larger city bureaucracy or the, or my colleagues in a number of city departments were doing, mm-hmm. or I was translating back to the mayor saying, this is what communities are really emphasizing about what they want to see in this project or wh- where they want to see our housing policy change, translating that conversation mm-hmm. into a conversation that would make sense for the mayor or his his uh, his his top staff. So, and, and I think now what I'm doing, you know, in, I'm teaching a course in criticism uh, history of criticism, and I'm trying to perform a, a similar kind of translation for the students. What, how, how have architects been treated as subjects? Um, we also look at architects as authors in the course. Uh, what does it mean for architects to write and publish, and how does that help mm-hmm. situate themselves within the profession? So it's kind of translating a little bit of that history uh, in a way that hopefully will make sense to to uh, to current students. Yeah, and I want to think about it as translating history. And I asked this question with guests who were uh, from the city of New York, and you have an eight-year or a four-year period to make a difference as a mayor or in the job that you had. And what kind of difference can you make in a four-year period that will be lasting? And it's not going to be a couple of buildings, right? It It's changing the perspective and the direction on how buildings are built or what's built and where they're built and with what kind of community involvement. So I'm wondering, A, did he have a vision that inspired you to say, yeah, I'm going to join the government to do this? And then B, for you to have the vision to translate that, to have a fulcrum-like effect, to maybe permanently change what the next two or three or four decades might look like? Absolutely. There are good arguments on both sides of this question of where a position like this should be located. And this gets to your question. Should it be located in the mayor's office 
should it be located in a department that is not subject to that those shifts in mayoral administration and the whims of the voters let's say or the or, right. or the reality of the term limits in the case of the mayor i worked for i think there are good arguments on both sides the case for putting a job like this in the mayor's office is that particularly in a city like los angeles the mayor's office has um, a unique uh, power to convene both among different city departments mm-hmm. and to convene city government and the public in, in terms of what you were referring to in, in community engagement. So, uh, and, and uh, proximity to the, the chief, you know, the executive and that the kind of setting of policy, setting of budgets, um, setting of visions that happens in the, in the mayor's office and doesn't happen in the rest of city government. The case for um, putting a job like this within a department is that you're closer to the staff that is really executing all of these things, particularly over the long term, right. and don't have to worry about those vagaries of you know elected officials whose administrations end or are term limited. In our case, it it had everything to do with this particular mayor who created the position, uh, Eric Garcetti, and had, as I mentioned, a real interest in knowledge of, you know, sophistication about these issues. And so Mm -hmm. I knew that he would be supportive of my work. And the pitch that he made to me really had to do with, I think, our agreement that Los Angeles was beginning to put more and more of an investment in its public realm and its public spaces after having neglected the public realm for many decades. What makes Los Angeles different is that our history of architectural in innovation experimentation, which is quite rich, has largely been in the in the private realm and in the realm of residential development, and even more specifically in the realm of the single-family house. Mm-hmm. So, if you made a list, for example, of the hundred most significant works of architecture in Los Angeles, a much higher proportion of those would be houses, hmm. as compared to Chicago or New York or even San Francisco where you'd have many more library branches, uh, courthouses, public buildings on that list, which is not to say that Los Angeles does not have a history of ambitious civic architecture. We did lose that thread, though, in the middle centuries as we invested really heavily, heavily in the kind of privatized version of Los Angeles, which was, of course, supported by freeway construction, supported by changes in policy at the federal level, which include the mortgage deduction and all kinds of other you know, right. ways that we support Americans' investment in, in, uh, in single-family houses. So in a certain sense, we're trying to recover that history, just as we're trying to recover a history of, of mass transit. So in the DNA of Los Angeles and the deeper history of LA are some really important precedents and models whether that's multifamily, innovative residential architecture or transit or investment in public spaces. And it's interesting that I'm thinking of design as something that tells everyone in the hierarchy that it matters. We're going to take this seriously instead of we're just going to get it done. And just the word design and having you push that would say, hey, the civic body matters here. Absolutely. And I, and I think over time, I came to realize what I was doing a lot of the time was acting as a kind of voice for quality mm-hmm. um, in conversations about this investment. And that doesn't mean that design was at the forefront of every conversation to get back to this procurement question. Right. It doesn't necessarily even mean that when we're putting out an RFP for a public project that we have to lead with design. It means that when we mention design in the RFP, we have to pay very careful attention to the language and the mechanisms by which we're you know, scoring and assessing then how we're executing the project. So a lot of it was being a voice for quality. You know, I was at a conference with a number of city architects and 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 
folks who have similar jobs to mine, some you know more directly equivalent than others. And there were a number of Asian and and um, and European uh, city employees there. And, and one of them said to me, you know, we, we often would come into these jobs, um, speaking of being a voice for quality or, or providing a kind of design oversight. We think we're going to take a building that's like an eight out of 10 and try to make it a nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10. But often the more valuable skill is to take what was going to be a four or a five and make it a six or a seven, uh-huh. um, take something that really was going to be um, not meeting a basic level um, of, of serving the public good and, and really without expanding the budget, without, you know, changing architects midstream, just by having some very focused conversations, which is a lot of how I spent my time on individual projects, mm-hmm. going back in, a, in an iterative process, a kind of design review that we did in-house, improving projects, not necessarily perfecting them, but, but really improving them in, in some measurable ways. Perfection, you never get there. So no, of course not. Yeah. One of the questions that architects, I think, reasonably raised when I when I announced that I was taking this job is, well, I wonder why the mayor decided to choose an architecture critic rather than an, a practicing architect mm-hmm. uh, for this job. And, and I, I do think that's a legitimate question. I think it gets back to this question of translation. Uh, because I'm not a practicing architect, because I had already learned how to use some of these skills of translation and being an advocate for good design to a broader audience, whether that's a public reading audience or an audience of, of city employees or department leaders, general managers, et cetera. Those are the skills that were most important in this job. Whereas I think architects, of course, uh, uh, are sometimes tempted to, to redesign a project or think about how they would have designed it. That's not how I approach these mm-hmm. questions. I don't think, oh, I would have designed it this way. I think, how can we take the voice or vision that this architect is working with and make it better within the confines of, of public work or the constraints that the city puts on any kind of uh, project? So I already had that. It was a, about a set of skills, but it was also about a kind of outlook or perspective. It's a broader perspective. Yeah. Yeah, about how I would design something. That's not how my brain works. I'm thinking about, you know, what the larger uh, goals of the project are and how those might be improved. Mm-hmm. So um, that was, you know, part of the conversation I had with the mayor when I when I took the job. Cool. So let's dig into a couple of the nuances of what happened in that role, and in particular, as real estate professionals, we find that the civic environment does not want what we're going to do, and doesn't care about it meeting the biggest goals that it can meet and the biggest bang for the buck on what happens. And often it becomes least common denominator and nimbyism and the rest of that. So first question is, how did you change that? Did that conversation change in Los Angeles? And were there, did it ever feel like a win-win was about to happen versus a win-lose, which is what people always seem to want? Yes, I would say I do agree with the premise of your question that it can be hard to clarify where these where the common interests come together. And I think change the conversation about how some of these projects move through the system. I, I had an interesting, I think by means of comparison, I'll mention that I when I was in Southern California, I was living in the city of Pasadena. So I was not in the city of Los Angeles. And I mentioned that because um, at the time that I was working as chief design officer, the mayor of Pasadena, Victor Gordo, invited me to be on the design commission in Pasadena. I decided to accept that appointment because I was interested in the comparison between Pasadena, where there's a long history and culture of design review. I think many architects and developers would say maybe too much. And Los Angeles, where there's not that history or culture, there's a kind of laissez-faire 
attitude um, to the point where many members of the public, I think, would say there needs to be a little bit of tighter rein on, on what, let's say, big developers are producing in terms of design. Mm-hmm. Sometimes major projects will get some kind of design review at the Planning Commission in the city of Los Angeles, but it is really a piecemeal uh, process or, or a, a project by project. Uh, and that was a very useful uh, experience. I, On the one hand, I will say positively, I was pleasantly surprised by the, the level of conversation in the Pasadena Design Commission, mostly practicing architects. I found my colleagues on the commission to be very thoughtful, taking the responsibility quite seriously. But it was, I think, also fair to say, perhaps from the point of view of architects or developers, a bit of overkill. We saw almost every project. I think we saw every project above 5,000 square feet. And we had almost total power. We could uh, hold up a project as long as we wanted if we thought that it wasn't making enough progress. And Mm -hmm. while it's important to have some teeth, as I mentioned, that that is a process that can be frustrating for developers, particularly as let's say materials costs, labor costs are fluctuating. The market is is going through its regular cycles uh, in, in unpredictable ways. I think there is a happy medium between the two, between, let's say, the L.A. version of things and the Pasadena mm-hmm. version of things. Uh, Los Angeles could be uh, a lot more systematic in how it does this kind of review and building a culture of design review, which I think is part of the real importance here. Mm-hmm. Pasadena could be a little more flexible in allowing architects to pursue a certain kind of vision. There, there are certain kind of cliches now about the, about the design review process, which I think have a, at least a grain of truth. I think we try to bring a little more nuance to the conversation in Pasadena, um, uh, but I do think bringing some rigor and a culture of the community expecting that there's a kind of safety net there, but also, again, to the L.A. point, really understanding that the history and the, the power of Los Angeles architecture culture in particular has been its eclecticism, has been mm-hmm. its freedom, uh, has been its ability to break from norms and traditions and operate outside of what maybe is expected of whatever the building type is. And that's one of the ways that you that you support and breed a significant architecture and a vital architecture culture. And if I were writing it from scratch for you know an imagined city, um, it would be, you know, it would bring those elements to, together somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, what I'm wondering is, does the role of the mayor's representative, and maybe it's more of a development than a design, design's the smaller picture, but development's the larger picture, is let's fight the project no matter what. Design's a component of that. And you want the conversation to be, hey, these buildings are going to happen Density is going to happen here. So how can we change the dialogue around density by inserting great design into it that might get the public to go, okay, cool, it's going to be here. Now let's make it good. Yeah, I would even take it a step further and say it's even about illustrating the ways in which these changes, denser development, new development, um, illustrating the benefits that that, right. that that kind of construction, that kind of zoning might bring to communities because in the Los Angeles context, and I think this is not unique to Los Angeles, let's just take housing, for example, the entire, and I did my best to change this as a critic, and I certainly did my best to change it uh, as chief design officer, the discussion about any zoning reform or change in how we build housing, breaking away from the paradigm of the single family house, examining the the complex history of redlining and and, and racially restrictive covenants, lending practices, et cetera. The conversation was 
almost exclusively dominated by the downsides to that kind of development, the problems right. that would come with it, um, overtaxing infrastructure, traffic, threats to so-called neighborhood character, et cetera. And that's largely because you had this funny political situation where on the one hand, zoning reform, increased density, more housing options tends to be politically popular when we ask a wide public. But there had been a polit- the political conventional wisdom among elected officials and their staffs had largely been that there was only downside in venturing into that territory. And I gave that ter- paradox or tension a lot of thought. And I think partially it has to do with the nature of the opposition to that change. So you have opposition, from, of course, from the expected quarters, from homeowner associations, so-called NIMBYs, right. people who are protecting the status quo and their interests, particularly financial interests, in a particular regime of home ownership and zoning, uh, which makes it very difficult to add new housing units across most of the city. On the other hand, you have a number of community-based organizations, particularly in communities of color, who are concerned about what new development might mean in terms of displacement or gentrification or change in their neighborhoods. And I I have to say that that is no small factor in a city that has demographically changed as as fast as Los Angeles has changed. The African-American population in Los Angeles has gone down by more than 20%, close to 25% in the last uh, generation. That is a significant shift that has everything to do with housing affordability. So these are not abstract concerns. But if you're an elected official and you're hearing on the one hand from community-based organizations and advocacy groups in communities of color, and you're hearing from wealthy homeowners in the hills, and they're unified in their opposition to anything, uh, that's pretty much case closed, right? So I think our goal was to reach this wide middle of people who are interested in some of that zoning reform and really clarifying some of the facts on the ground and then also the benefits that some of these changes might bring to communities, including some of the communities of color who are under threat of displacement. And so some of the facts on the ground include that Los Angeles, despite its reputation as a city of single family houses and homeowners, actually has one of the uh, highest percentages of rental households in the country. We are usually fourth or fifth in that list on a national basis. We have about a two to one uh, renter to homeowner ratio. So about two thirds, um, sometimes a bit higher of residents in Los Angeles are renters rather than homeowners. So there is a constituency, of course, that is quite large that theoretically would support uh, zoning reform and the ability to build more housing options in more neighborhoods, right? And then also clarifying those benefits. I think the pandemic was very helpful, silver lining of what was a very difficult pandemic for Los Angeles in a lot of ways clarified that a lot of, you know, we all had a lot of time to sit at home and 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 take stock of our residential situation, our neighborhoods, what we could walk to, what we liked about our residential living situations and, and maybe what was lacking. And a lot of the things that we found lacking or that we really found we appreciated more in the pandemic when we were spending more time at home um, are things that might be enabled by some of the additional housing options or zoning reform that we've been talking about. What are the amenities that are within walking distance? Mm-hmm. What What is the local retail that you can reach on foot? And that led directly to some work we, we were doing in support of things like reintroducing a small-scale retail in low-rise residential neighborhoods, the so-called you know corner store, the reintroduction of the corner store into neighborhoods that 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 had that kind of amenity for many decades. You want some space where you can remove yourself 
mm-hmm. have some guarantee of privacy of quiet, but you also want, without having to get in your car, some access to community, to friends, to a social life that doesn't require having to drive halfway across the yeah. across the city. That's why Starbucks was so popular for a 15-year period, because people wanted to get out of their, who were working from home even back then, wanted to get out of their house and they go sit in the coffee shop to do their exactly. email and do their So this work. is, and yeah, just another point on this competition that we did, it was really an example of what design enables. So I think we found that, that there was this kind of stalemate in the political conversation. On the one hand, significant majorities were supportive of zoning reform if you polled them or if you asked them at the ballot box. On the other hand, no elected official saw any upside in in uh, arguing for, let's say, uh, um, allowing more, more apartments in low-rise and single-family neighborhoods, right? right? So you have this kind of deadlock there. How to break that log jam, I, I really began to see some ways in which the particular skills of architects and landscape architects could be used to change the tenor of the conversation and to illustrate the benefits, as we've been talking about, that these kinds of changes might bring. So the role that architects and design can play um, in that equation is to show people what a well-designed version of a new courtyard apartment that is green, that is electric, that you know uh, is denser than some of those earlier models might accomplish and how it might help us get to some goals that, you know, huge majorities of Angelinos believe in and support. Mm-hmm. And the architect's role was to stand in the middle there, again, be do a kind of translation, but in this case, use their speculative, imaginative, and illustrative skills to, to demonstrate right. the benefit that those changes might bring. It, it's interesting. So I, I live in Sonoma County, and we have a huge tract of land that used to be called the Sonoma Development Center. And so it was a public institute where people would live who had developmental disabilities. But it's a huge, beautiful, beautiful property. And it's been being sold and being redeveloped. And the entire discussion is how many units, how many units, how many units. Now, I know what tract housing looks like. And if they dump only 100 tract houses in there, still fairly dense, actually, or if they put in 500 amazing buildings or 500 amazing units, I think the neighbors, if they were actually looking at real charrette, real opportunity of what design could be, they'll be attracted to the denser thing if it's super high quality. So we're discussing the wrong thing. We're discussing the number, not the quality. Yes. And I think it's uh, in part, we've trained people to do that. We've trained citizens to come to community meeting. Um, we've trained them in how to speak in a way that will get the attention of their elected representatives or stop a project that they want to stop. And that's where some kind of shaping or guidance of the conversation is really important. And I, and I also spent a lot of time working on community engagement and really, again, trying to move past this conventional wisdom that can, the community, the more community engagement you have on the project, the worse the outcome. There are a lot of architects who feel that way. There are probably some developers who feel that way. And, you know, probably for good reason. There are many, many examples of community engagement processes that do accomplish more along the lines of what you were talking about. Um, they make it easy for people to block things, to say no. Mm-hmm. That's the path of least resistance, right, is to say it's got to be smaller, less dense, or maybe not happen at all, versus a conversation that can be shaped or organized to talk about how the project can be better in all kinds of ways, and how architecture can help us uh, reach those improvements and and define them and maybe even quantify what good results look like. So there were a number of projects. The first example was the way we put together this low-rise competition, which we call the design challenge. There is a feeling in communities 
sometimes that competitions lead to a situation where outside architects and design experts are imposing their kind of visionary ideas mm-hmm. about where a community should go onto those communities from outside, from mm-hmm. without, mm-hmm. not always listening to what the community feels about its own future. We really wanted to be sensitive to that dynamic and try to reverse it. So what we did, uh, we, we had come to the conclusion, you know, with the mayor and with others that it made sense to to use a competition which looked back to the case study program, which you know was mm-hmm. uh, sponsored by Art and Architect Arts and Architecture magazine. Right after the war, those were new single family prototypes for modern living in Los Angeles. We thought, you know, that would remain such an influential campaign. What if we did that for multifamily projects as a way of illustrating again the future of twenty first century living for Los Angeles, right. uh, living a little closer together, living a l- little more intelligently in terms of sustainability and the climate crisis? So we had these broad goals, um, but we wanted to avoid this dynamic that I was discussing, and so. We actually tried to flip that totally upside down, and we started with conversations with the community. So we said, we don't know what shape this thing is going to take. We don't know what the design brief is going to look like. We're actually going to front load the community conversations rather than getting your feelings about what you think about the winners of the competition at the end, which is sometimes how these things are done. So we organized a series of uh, meetings with a number of, uh, of collaborators on the project, affordable housing developers, housing advocates. Uh, sustainability groups, a number of other community groups that were working on new cooperative housing models, community land trusts, uh, which there are interesting number in Los Angeles. So we organized a series of thematic conversations. This was in the middle of the pandemic. So they were all done on Zoom and recorded. We made those sessions required viewing for anyone who wanted to participate Mm. in the competition. And then we use the conversations to really shape directly the brief, uh, the program of the competition itself. And those two things really did change, I think, the nature, the entries that we got. They were much more thoughtful about the community, Mm -hmm. community history. And I think they made the uh, winners much more palatable in terms of community communities embracing them as um, uh, models, not just that they would tolerate, but that they they could um, right. they could get excited about. And the second example where we worked quite hard on the engagement piece was having to do with a new city approach to developing monuments and memorials and more broadly thinking about what we called civic memory, particularly Confederate monuments. But this had begun to be a national conversation. So when communities have a sense of what they would like to remember from their own past or recall or pay more attention to or honor, commemorate, that the city could do a much better job at at facilitating, supporting Mm -hmm. that kind of connection. And that has spun off this report, a number of individual specific projects. The one that um, I've been working on most directly is a memorial to the victims of the 1871 Chinese massacre in Los Angeles, which is still the deadliest day, single day of violence in Los Angeles history. 10% of the Chinese population uh, or somewhere between uh, 19 and 24 uh, Chinese were killed in 1871. And this is the really remarkable statistic that I learned in this process. A mob of about 500 people or about 10% of the total population of the city at the time participated in this mob violence that killed 10% of the Chinese population at a moment when there was, there were examples of this anti-Chinese violence up and down the West coast, um, because 
uh, Chinese populations were getting more established. They were getting wealthier. Um, they were having access to um, to better paying jobs in ways that that prompted a really uh, violent and nasty uh, backlash in a number of cities, including Los Angeles. So we are developing for the first time uh, after hearing a number of folks that that even Chinese Americans, even native uh, Angelinos. Uh, who are Chinese American did not know about this violence right. to develop for the first time a prominent memorial to the victims. And we did extensive and continue to do. Uh, our goal was to really have community engagement be part of every stage of the process. We continue to go back to the community, get ideas that further refine mm-hmm. what the designers are doing, then take those refinements back to the community, et cetera. Sometimes what the community is telling us is this has to have more impact Particularly in this case, because this is a subject that shockingly is as as present now as it, particularly with vi- violence against Asian people that was there before. Absolutely, and th- and this is a good example of what we learned from the larger civic memory report and process that we are now applying to a particular project. So, yeah. there's a great historian at Stanford, Richard White, now emeritus. Uh, He was a member of our civic memory working group, and he reminded us very early on. He said, you know, we think of memorials as commemorating or marking a certain moment in history, looking back many years or many decades or even many centuries. Right. What memorials really do more clearly than that is they reflect the values of the society that is building them. They think they're looking backward and saying something about the past. They are really saying something quite powerful about their own culture, which and their own moment in time. Think about the Confederate monuments. Those were not most of them put up right after uh, the Civil War, even during Reconstruction. They were put up, many of them, um, during the rise of the KKK and certain white supremacy movements in the 19-teens and and even the 20s, right, at a particular moment. They reflected that moment of racial animus Mm -hmm. more than they reflected the lost cause or the Confederacy itself. We said in this RFI, in the description of the project that we want this memorial to, of course, mark the lives and the deaths of the victims and the moment of anti-Chinese violence that was present, as I mentioned, up and down the West Coast in the 1870s, but also to say something about the current climate of anti-Asian violence. Um, um, That's why you're spending the dough. How could it not not do that? And B, let's be honest about the need to do that as well. Really, really important. And I'm thinking the word intentionality through so much of this conversation because you're raising the bar. So let me ask a few questions about very specific issues and answer them with all three of your hats. Answer them with an architecture critic hat, with the design officer of Los Angeles, and now as a professor hat. One, something headlined for Los Angeles is homelessness. And so you were there during a period where it didn't get better. COVID happened. That doesn't help. Not blaming you on this because this is everywhere. Sure, sure. But with all three hats, any comments on what we do, how we address this in our particularly in our urban environments? Right. And this is an issue where we didn't, as an administration, in my own work, we didn't we didn't make the progress or the headway that we hope to. I think it's important to 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 be upfront about that. Yep. And as you mentioned, this is not unique to Los Angeles, but but it's a particularly acute issue in Los Angeles. And it is at the top of the list of what I think the mayor spent the latter years of his administration focusing on and is of course at the top of the list of what the new mayor Karen Bass right. doing having declared a state of emergency and homelessness in her first day in office and having campaigned on a promise to 
to do that. She has a mandate along those lines. So I did participate in enough housing work uh, to have a different understanding than I did as a critic. So part of what I wrote about homelessness as a critic in terms of the three hats, I think some of my ideas or feelings, perspectives were validated by my experience in City Hall. It wasn't that I thought, oh, I've completely changed my mind. Mm-hmm. A lot of the the, the um, obstacles are obstacles that I had identified as a critic, but I think I understood the roadblocks more clearly after having worked on certain projects, and I now understand them differently. Or, you know, I think about how I might approach them in my current position and I've actually just finished writing a chapter of it. There's an affordable housing book that I think will be titled The Affordable Housing Reader that uh, Alexander Gorlin and Victoria Newhouse are editing that I'm writing a chapter for. Very, very fortunate to be among the contributors to this volume, Alexander Gorlin, an architect who concentrates on housing and increasingly affordable housing in New York and Victoria Newhouse, a longtime author and editor of some really excellent books on architecture and urban design. So I addressed a lot of these questions and pulled together some thoughts about these questions in in that chapter, which I've which I've just finished. Headlines, headlines to that chapter. Give us a brief yeah. Note. The headline is really that a Los Angeles has not really ever built public housing in the way that that term is traditionally understood, mm-hmm. or social housing, as as it is sometimes called now. So, and that really goes back directly in the political history of the city. And it goes back to Chavez Ravine and a mayor's race in the 1950s, uh, Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium is. Norman Chandler, who is the um, publisher of the Los Angeles Times, really had um, a political philosophy based in opposition to two things. One was labor unions and the other was uh, public housing. So uh, when Fletcher Bauer and the mayor in the 1940s and 50s mounted with support of new federal subsidy, a a campaign to build um, a true public housing for the first time in Los Angeles, including in Chavez Ravine, where the architects uh, Neutra and Alexander were hired to do a quite extensive modernist housing scheme. Chandler, the publisher of the LA Times and the kind of uh, political elites in Los Angeles decided that he needed to go. They recruited a candidate, a then little known Republican congressman uh, named Norris Paulson to run specifically to defeat uh, this housing plan. He did win. Uh, and that was the nail in the coffin in truly public housing. I mentioned that in Los Angeles and the already cleared land became uh, the site of Dodger Stadium instead. The plan was to build 10,000 units in very short order of, um, of fully pu- public uh, housing. In the absence of having done that, as opposed to New York, where for all the problems with NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority now mm-hmm. did have a really rich history of, of housing, uh, I think close to half a million uh, New Yorkers at the high point of that system and housing them quite well in certain decades. Los Angeles has fallen back on a system that is uh, uh, deeply imperfect and compromised, which in- involves various kinds of public subsidy that the of, often the taxpayers uh, decide to pay for at the city level, county level, sometimes state level, often the federal level, which is then um, combined with investments from affordable housing developers, from investors, from other sources, sometimes philanthropies, Mm -hmm. that produces a, I think as I described in this chapter, a tall and often teetering uh, capital stack with all of the subsidies stuffed into it. Now, however efficient any of those contributors are, they all have their own staffs, they all have their own overhead. 
Um, they are then building often, in the case of projects I worked on in Los Angeles, permanent supportive housing. So that is uh, subsidized housing that also has social services wrapped right. into it. Often the first or second step that uh, people experiencing homelessness move into, they might move from the street into a, a emergency shelter, which a, a number of which we've also been building. The next step might be permanent supportive housing. Right. So that comes with a significant cost. Um, and then on top of that, the sites that are available for this kind of construction, whether publicly owned most of the time, or sometimes uh, sites that the public buys, have been passed over for many decades by the development community for all kinds of reasons. They are not the the, the class A sites, as it were. So they're e- either uh, steeply graded, they in- require environmental remediation, they're eccentrically shaped, they're adjacent to freeways, sometimes three or four of those things at the same time. There are reason that they haven't been built on. And so you add all of those things up together, and it's not surprising that you're looking at, in terms of permanent supportive housing projects, a per unit cost of um, you know upwards of uh, half a million dollars on on average, <laughs> yeah, low uh, average, and, I think, and often and often higher. The other thing is the politics of it um, are you have a similar kind of tension or gap between what the broader populace is supportive of, what they will support in terms of bond measures, taxing themselves to pay for, or more generally support for building emergency shelters, building permanent supportive housing and building affordable housing and more housing in general, and how those debates play out locally mm-hmm. in an individual council district um, in a city where when it comes to land use, the uh, individual council offices in Los Angeles remain uniquely and unusually powerful and have the ability to veto projects that are not supported by individual council members to to a degree that is unusual in American politics. So then you have this large support of new funding uh, to meet the scale of the problem on the one hand uh, among the general public. And then in a place like Venice, where you saw really, really toxic and nasty debates play out over both uh, uh, bridge home uh, emergency shelters and permanent supportive projects, you have local community groups that are fighting tooth and nail to to keep any of these projects uh, from from happening. So the the short answer, the headline is, we need to be building a lot more housing. We need to be building a lot more market rate and a lot more supportive and and shelter housing, shelter bed. We have the support of the general population to do that, but executing it on a council district by council district level in the sites that we have available for that uh, kind of housing construction is a recipe for both the cost on the one hand and the and the slowness of responding to the scale of the problem on the other. I think that's a great summary. It's an un- unfortunately what we know to be true. And I didn't know the history though. So it's interesting the disinvestment over the decades then amplifies the problem in the city, which then amplifies the dollars it's going to cost to get out of it. Yes. And very briefly, the privatization that we mentioned, this investment in private amenity that Los Angeles threw itself into so wholeheartedly in the post-war decades, Mm -hmm. absolutely included turning away from the idea of public or social housing in favor of subsidies for particularly single family development. And then, of course, supported at the national level by by what the federal government was doing. We we have invested heavily in housing and it's been in single family housing and the infrastructure and the tax support to do this. Okay, next question. Next one's the sustainability. So put the sustainability lens against the built environment and against the environment to be built 
on top of what we've been talking about. What's sustainability going to mean over the next 20 years? In terms of being yes, and here's a, a subject where Los Angeles has made great strides. It still has a lot more work to do, given the deficit that we have built up in paying attention to these issues in the in the city that, that fell in love so deeply with the car and the freeway and the family house, et cetera. Um, but in some ways, my position o- owes itself to the existence of a chief sustainability officer in the Garcetti administration. It was the first of these so-called chief positions that he created. Mm-hmm. He went on to create a chief procurement uh, officer role, chief data officer, and then chief design officer by the time I came around. So first Matt Peterson, uh, and then uh, Lauren Faber O'Connor as chief sustainability officers in the mayor's office, I think have one of the uh, uh, most impressive track records of any sustainability office in an American city and really making a priority on the policy front. Some of these questions about mobility, about energy, about a history of you know the city of Los Angeles being deeply embedded uh, with fossil fuel production. This is the city built on oil riches. Right. Then it was built on real estate and Hollywood riches. But before that, it was built on, on oil riches. It's a petroleum city in a lot of ways. And unwinding that, undoing it um, is something that a lot of policy change has been has been doing. I think so. I think we made great strides. Where the work remains is thinking in a more holistic way about the relationship uh, from a policy point of view between or among mobility, housing, and sustainability. So it's not only building more densely, building closer, locating housing more intelligently, and then finally breaking the ways that policy still, uh, and I, of course, got a front row seat in understanding how this works, pays deference to the car and the ease of automotive mobility as opposed to other kinds of mobility that requires still in Los Angeles street widenings uh, or dedications for every new housing. So, So it's, you know, the one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. On the one hand, we're building often subsidized uh, or supported by really smart policy. We're building uh, denser housing uh, close to transit with subsidies for developers to include affordable units in those projects. Uh, On the other, we we have a DOT and plan departments that's still requiring the streets in front of those buildings to be widened for increased car traffic at the expense of pedestrians Mm -hmm. at the expense of cycling infrastructure at the expense sometimes of street trees and shade which is more and more important as the city warms up right so embedded in the deep policy of the city are and i could give you a list of conflicting priorities yeah and that's where the next real battle is thinking about this larger holistic relationship among all all of the issues Traffic planning. We had Michael Colville Anderson on the podcast from Copenhagen uh, last summer, and he talked about the old planning tools for traffic that have been around for 40, 50 years, and the car is the predominant subject, not the human being. And so you can't do anything to impede traffic flow, which, of course, is the opposite of where you have to go. I sometimes fought the toughest headwinds at the LA Times when I was writing about these issues. There is an assumption built up that it is the job of city planners to ease one's car trip from one side of the city right. to, to the other. And that is no more deeply embedded in American city than in Los Angeles. You know, if you're in New York, and certainly if you're in London or Tokyo, mm-hmm. there's not an expectation that you will get in your car in your, in to your go anywhere <laughs> and drive all the way across the city and encounter on the way right. a city that has been designed to, to ease that trip. There is still an assumption by planners, but also by, by the right. media. 
in Los Angeles that that is the job of planners to help make that trip one side of this huge region to the other as, as smooth as, and fast and efficient as possible, even right. now. Okay, two more questions. Next one is, and again, have all three hats on here because you're describing yeah. not just Los Angeles, but the future because you're training kids, right, who are going to be architects and planners. Talk about yeah. downtowns and being re the reinvention of downtowns with office culture changing as drastically as it will over the next 10 years and it has over the last four years. It is kind of the million dollar question. When I started at the LA Times in 2004, downtown Los Angeles was empty. It was a ghost town. John right. Carroll, the editor who hired me said, they roll up the sidewalks at five o'clock. So don't expect to get a cup of coffee or a drink when you leave work at the end of the day. But because of some policy changes that started around the late 90s, that had begun to change really dramatically by the time I left the Times before the pandemic. In particular, the adaptive reuse ordinance in Los Angeles, which allowed for the conversion of office buildings, apropos of the, of the conversation happening in a lot of cities now, mm -hmm. allowed office buildings to be turned into apartment buildings with a minimum of red tape, particularly as it related to parking requirements. So waived parking requirements that also made the process easier. That was one of the most successful changes in urban planning policy in any American city over the last uh, 30 years. It was among um, the chief reasons that downtown finally did have a renaissance in Los Angeles and become a residential center. The problem is, as we think about now, as there's more and more hybrid work, a lot of those office buildings are going to be empty uh, permanently unless we think about how to mm -hmm. reuse them. The problem in Los Angeles, as in other cities, is that we've already done the low-hanging fruit. So the small, small floor plate buildings that were very popular for adaptive reuse conversion in Los Angeles in the early 2000s, and we have a lot of them in the historic core of, of, of Los Angeles, a lot of beautiful buildings, they made for relatively easy conversion. It's a much different question, as you know, when you're talking about a post-war office tower with huge floor plates. You know, what kind of apartment is going to work that doesn't have access to, to, to light and air at the at the envelope, the edge of the building, right? That's a big question. So what to do with those buildings, how to incentivize a different kind of mixed use uh, development. Even this also has to do with the change in retail. It was conventional wisdom. It was right. absolute chapter in verse and urban planning that you wanted to put, you wanted to require retail at the ground level of an apartment building or a mixed use project, because that would quote unquote, activate the street. Yep. It is the case that in most downtowns, the way to activate the street is to have a stoop and have a residential project on the ground, you know, unit on the ground floor, right? So um, these things can shift even separate from the pandemic, you know, the way that digital uh, shopping has changed the retail experience, right? So all of these things mean on the one hand that the downtown is ripe for a new version, and, and we are working, Los Angeles is working on a so-called adaptive reuse 2.0 because of the pandemic, because of online culture, and because of the, the buildings that, that make sense for conversion, you know, in a pretty streamlined way have already been converted. Yep. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But if we don't fix our, our downtowns, will implode to themselves because of the lack of foot traffic. You can't. No, there is an absolute cycle. You know, you can have a virtuous downwards. cycle. We started Vicious to really cycle. have a virtuous yeah. cycle in Los Angeles when you I did. was at the time. So downtown was really success was feeding on itself. Now, of course, the spiral and this has to do with every major transit system is seeing this too. Right. Ridership is declining. That makes it less pleasant to ride. 
the trains makes it less safe sometimes to ride the trains, which means fewer people are going to be interested in riding the train. You know, it's a it, it can be a, it can be a tough cycle to break out of. Sure can. Well, we're putting a lot of mandates on you as a teacher and in your in your profession to keep working these problems for more permanent ways. It's one observation. My daughter was in Kosovo for the last four years, and mm. in the city of Pristina, there there's a lot of public investment because it's a developing country. But they're putting the buildings in the wrong places. They're just putting up a building because the, the site is there. They have the land. So they follow the least common denominator in terms of there's no planning. There's building no planning. And the danger to so many of the things that we're talking about is cool building, no planning. They're discontinued. And then you don't mm-hmm. create neighborhoods. Then you create traffic problems. And then you're building public infrastructure that's not going to be sustainably happy over the years because it's in the wrong places. Some of those building blocks are in good shape in Los Angeles. We are updating the zoning code in a comprehensive way for the first time since the 1940s in a process called RECO that is almost complete. That is in turn informing uh, updates to the 35 community plans across Los Angeles. There, There is a myth that Los Angeles is an unplanned city or equally untrue that it was planned around the automobile. It was really planned around the streetcar or let's say the marriage or the arranged Mm. marriage between the streetcar and the speculative subdivision right before the private automobile. This is in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Then it was in the middle decades of the 20th century planned around uh, locating housing near certain centers of, of industry, aerospace and others. Hollywood and others, but there has been attention to this comprehensive and holistic kind of planning um, that you're talking about. Now, how that then, when it meets some of the community opposition that we've been talking about is where things get tricky. I um, am impressed by the ways in which the kind of um, recode process and the community plan updates are thinking in that in those larger terms that you're that you're um, that you're talking about. Of course, as it plays out on the individual project, uh, yeah, can remain tricky. It's really hard. You're moving ocean liners, right? So it's it's that that lever point that we we're making at the beginning of the conversation. So, Chris, mm-hmm. the last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into this business. We've talked about a lot of different businesses. So it's real estate generally. It's the built environment. Maybe it's just architects. What's your advice for a young person? I think I have some advice that is universal across across those disciplines, and that is really learn learn how to write. Pay attention to your writing. And that means reading a lot more than you do. However much you're reading now, you need to be reading more. Mm-hmm. And you need to be thinking about how that informs your own writing. It is a In all those industries you just mentioned, it is a kind of secret weapon. Mm-hmm. If you can articulate your goals clearly in writing, whether that's in-house in a memo to your boss, whether in it's, it, it's in an RFP, in writing an RFP as someone who works in government, or as an architect or developer responding to an RFP, mm-hmm. or as an architect, if you can, again, as an architect, I'm teaching this as part of my class. I'm teaching a criticism class that has been on the books in one version or another at Yale for many years. The one twist I've given it is to talk about architects who write, not just uh, uh, critics writing about architects as subjects. Because again, it is this kind of secret weapon in a range of ways. One is inside the office to index your projects, to help clarify within the team, within the firm, what the project is trying to do, how it relates to the larger body of work, how it's going to help the office situate itself in architecture, culture, be understood Mm. by 
potential clients, the public, et cetera. Then in terms of writing for publication or for something that's more public facing, what does the writing on your website look like? How are you describing your projects um, in public in all kinds of ways? And then if you're operating at the most sophisticated level, like a Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi, Rem Coolhouse, Charles Moore, there are other great examples from the architecture world. If you're able then to write beautifully and strategically as a practicing architect, you have all kinds of opportunities to really shape and give yourself agency within the field. And I think that's true in all these disciplines and professions that we that we just talked about. So if it's if it can be you, great. And then if you start an office, if you can find somebody who can help you bring that strategy to your office, I think it can be it can be uh, leveraged in, in all kinds of uh, useful ways. So that's the lesson that I'm testing out. That's the kind of uh-huh. hypothesis of my of my course is that architects who can figure out how to write will have some significant built-in advantages within practice within the discipline, we're testing that idea across the semester. You know, you're the first guest who's, every guest has answered this question. You're the first one to talk about writing, but it's interesting. It's one of my favorite subjects on the topic, because if you can't, for me, it's really basic. If you can't write, you can't make an argument. And everything's about making an argument and making a point. And people are so quick to express it. But if you have to say, give me the three bullet points that really matter here doesn't have to be artfully written. I don't care about that. But what are the three points you're trying to make? People can't come up with them. To clarify. That's right. Clarify, clarify your thinking. And, and I will add one thing on that. The, it is a bit of a truism and criticism that critics use the act of writing to figure out what we think about something. And I don't know. I probably said that when I was a critic. And I don't know that I believed it because I right. was doing it. I definitely noticed how true that was when I stopped writing and moved to city government. There were projects where... I had, at least for me personally, I had trained my brain to use the act of writing to really, to your point, to really clarify what I, first, what I thought about a project, what I made of it, and then what I wanted to say about it. And I think for how many of us have seen architects or students uh, make a presentation or in a final review uh, where what you want as an audience member is a little more clarity about what it is they're trying to accomplish here. And that, again, that clarity needs to be developed in-house before the project meets the world, right? And writing can be an unusually useful way, I think, to do that. Great tool. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you on the show. I look forward to continue our conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.